0: From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today, digital transformation and delivering a better customer and employee experience. Because of the pandemic, what was once important is now urgent. And CEOs are signaling that digital transformation is a top priority. But to succeed, an enterprise needs to focus not on just the technical parts, like optimizing the cloud and AI, but also have a renewed emphasis on people. Two words for you. Embracing transformation. My guest is Bill Kanarek, EY's Global Chief Transformation Architect for Consulting. He helps clients compete in a digital marketplace and adopt customer-centric operating models. A majority of Bill's career has focused on innovation and strategy, mergers and acquisitions, and building the global business. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with EY. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Laurel. Thanks
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: You've spent your career focused on customer experience and digital transformation, but also finding what comes next. After this pandemic year, it seems that these super abilities of yours will be in high demand. What are you seeing in terms of consequential changes coming out of various industries and companies?
1: So it's a good it's a good question, and and I'll 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 get give you a, at least my perspective on a specific answer to your your, your question. But I, I also before doing that, want to. Isolate on on one thing, Laurel. You you pointed out, which is by by helping you know organizations focus or find what comes next. And um, I would suggest that that's not really what matters um, most, because if you look at the world of finding what's next, and you could say what's the what's the closest approximation to a world who's uh, you know whose focus is entirely on that, you might say it's you know the. You know the 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 venture capital or maybe even the sort of the private equity world, and if you're a baseball fan, you know that uh, you know 300 is a pretty good batting average, Um, and that's about as well as the very best VCs bat in in terms of predicting what's next. So, you know, the failure rate you know looks more like seven out of ten times. Um, And so, what we say to organizations and most of the clients we serve call it the you know the Fortune you know 2,000 um, are not equipped themselves to think like VCS and so you have to imagine then that their batting average is is considerably lower um, but the value creation which is what this is all about of course um, in particular where the digital transformation imperative um, is reshaping um, how value is aggregated you know you look at some pretty obvious but but also sort of you know stunning, observations as relates to that point you know amazon um on a market capitalization basis worth more than you know you know the the 10 biggest retailers in the world combined so you've got a big a big shift in the value equation there so you look at some of those things and say in a world of shifting value in a world that trades off of these digital principles and digital imperatives it's not about identifying and or predicting what's next it's about getting ready for what's next and the readiness to equip the organization for what comes next is only in part a function of the application of technology. It's far more a function of the application of humanity and the orientation to value creation. And as you get those things right, then then you can start to take advantage of the rich vein of opportunity that, that, that the digital transformation market enables.
0: So when you say appreciation of humanity, what does that look like? What business practices would be different nowadays um, with that lens than, say, five even ten years ago?
1: Yeah, and I think um, what we're what we're seeing, which has really been you know a thread you know throughout the evolution of of the marketplace driven by digital disruption, you know, has been an enormous focus on customer centricity. And I think if you if you look at what's happened just over the course of the past you know uh, eighteen months. You know, to quote Lenin, right? There, 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 there are decades, um, and I'm not talking John now, I'm talking Vladimir. There, there are decades yeah. where, where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Um, and over the course of, of, you know, the onset of the pandemic until today, we, we've seen some staggering changes, right? You know, it took, it took, you know, um, you know, 10 years for, you know, e-commerce sales in the U.S. to get to, you know, low double digits and it took the period of the pandemic for that. Percentage of sales to double. Right? You know, telehealth visits prior to the pandemic were you know four or five percent of all visits to a doctor's office. They're forty or fifty percent now, and so you, you've seen some massive you know, changes. And what you've seen is an acceleration to building the business around the specific needs of 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 the customer, of the consumer. So a big area where we're helping clients to, to focus is is really increasing the depth to which they. They understand the, you know, the, the the consumer. And if you think about most organizations which have typically been built in sort of industrial sort of stovepipe models where you've got a division that focuses on a particular set of products and services, and it's the products and services, the manufacturing, the distribution, the marketing of those, that has really been the principal driver of how those divisions have oriented to the marketplace and, and driving growth. And I think now what we're seeing is If you, if you, if you take that example and say that's a vertical or stovepipe view, customer centricity forces you to take a horizontal view where you're trying to orchestrate across the organization to the benefit of the, of the consumer. Now you're putting the human being in the center, not your own organizational structure and need in the center. And that is one of the most significant and most profound uh, changes we've seen. And that is, that is intensifying. And you can look at, the you know the, the evolution of this since the beginning of of all of it, you know, the the browser in the late nineties. And then I think now, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, COVID and the, uh, you know, and the pandemic is another moment as it were. That has intensified the, you know, the customer centricity driving the digital transformation agenda.
0: Yeah, you've actually said in the past, digital transformation begins and ends with the customer. So, what should enterprises be really thinking about as they try to shift from being you know me centric to we centric?
1: So So I think you know um, and these are these are really you know laurel easy things to say, but they're incredibly hard things to do because this 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 shift to you know customer centricity is a massive shift in orientation. So, most organizations essentially have, have 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 grown up and have built enormous you know muscle, and built enormous operating constructs and discipline around how do I get the consumer to buy more of what it is I want to sell? Um, and what we're now saying is you're you're essentially going to reverse that, which is how do I make more of what the consumer wants to buy? And the difference between the first thing and the second thing is like the difference, you know, um, between throwing right-handed and throwing left-handed. You've been throwing, you know, you still have two arms, but you know, you've got one dominant arm, and now all of a sudden you're saying success is going to be a function of of, of learning to, to to be able to throw with your non your non dominant uh, arm. It's in, it's it's insanely hard, and in order to do that well, you've got to say, yeah, I start with a depth of understanding of the needs of the consumer that I serve. And my principal objective against the opportunity around digital transformation is to be the orchestrator of the needs uh, of that consumer, as opposed to the seller of products and services that I've determined I, I want to sell. And so one of the real dynamics we're seeing as it relates to Consumer centricity is 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 um, number one. What it takes to to drive to what we might call customer intimacy, um, and I can unpack that for you if that's helpful. But then equally to orient to um, these platform and ecosystem dynamics that says you want to be an asset light orchestrator of opportunity on behalf of the customer and those who put themselves in the best position to do that are going to win. And, and as an example, we're in a conversation with one of the largest you know, um, organizations in the United States, and what they're trying to do is push to becoming a top consumer brand. And you have to say, well, today, what does it mean to be a, a top five or top 10 consumer brand? And the answer, at least in our definition, is you have to become an indispensable part of a person's everyday life. And as you're an indispensable part of a person's everyday life, you have to first understand what that person needs and wants in their everyday life and realize how that might be understood on a Monday and changed by a Thursday. And then equally, if you're going to try to be the curator and the orchestrator of the majority of those needs, you have to orient to that person's needs ahead of your own. And again, that's a very it's a very difficult thing to do in particular because most organizations and certainly most chief executives have been rewarded and disproportionately so on, on on earnings growth and increase in market capitalization. So now you're saying I've got to both change the way I operate and transform for the future while simultaneously driving earnings growth because that's the expectation my investor and shareholder base has. So how do I pivot to consumer centricity and continue to drive financial performance and you know those are obviously significant challenges
0: yeah there's there's no doubt that there's pressures uh, from everywhere but isn't the greater pressure that you fail to succeed and the company itself fails
1: well I think I think you're you're right Laurel about that but it, it takes you know um, it takes a certain kind of certain kind of foresight to do that I mean most most organizations um, are, are sort of like the individual making a New Year's resolution on the first of January. Um, you know, I don't know what the exact stats are, but they're, it's shockingly low, right? The per- meaning the percentage of people who are now committing to uh changing their diet and going to the gym more on on january 1st how many of those people are actually doing it on you know february 1st and so i think sustaining the, the commitment to do that is what's of what's incredibly hard and sometimes what it takes is just a you know a, you know a realization um you know that hits you across the head and i'll just give you an example of that Domler, who um You know, it's now very been very public around, you know, the commitment to their own, you know, significant transformation effort. And I think one of the things that drove them to finally, you know, um, you know, suit up, as it were, to do that is the recognition that their initial investment, they they had a very substantial investment in Tesla. You know, they held that investment and they sold it and, and thought that was the greatest success on the planet. So that realization was shocking when you really paid attention to that and said, okay, we have no choice. But more often than not, the instinct is to is to certainly intellectually acknowledge the need, but to otherwise postpone serious commitment to it because the, the risk um, and the consequence is potentially high. So it's not that it's not at some level intellectually obvious, it's just hard, you know, um, you know, to really, really commit to it. And and I, I appreciate that's the, your. There's lots of competing interests and, and inherent tension, but that's that's really in many ways where the, you know, where 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 the unlock comes, which is how you we we refer to it oftentimes as the transformation mindset. But how you choose to orient to something, it's the, you know, it's the it's the classic situation of two people doing the same job. One one person's on 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 his knees laying bricks and identifies as a bricklayer, and another person's on his knees laying bricks and identifies as a person building a cathedral. It's the the, and the only thing that's different is a choice of how you orient what it is you're doing. And I think a lot of it comes down to that.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of, of, um, thinking about it. EY recently released its global, uh, CEO imperative study, which surveyed more than 300 chief executive officers from the Forbes global 2000 companies. And you know, imperative was obviously a very carefully chosen word here, um, and the report called it a moment of truth for CEOs. Why is this time right now in a post-pandemic world so important for CEOs as well as the whole entire C-suite?
1: You know, I think there's, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think, firstly, obviously, um, you know, the the you know the the, the pandemic, um, uh, you know, obviously caused enormous you know disruption to you know to the way the world works. Um, and the 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 digital you know the digital transformation market seriously intensified so if you look at the you know the growth rates of the of the broader digital transformation market which which you know depending on how you want to look at it is it's about between hardware software and services it's about a trillion dollar market today and most most projections have it growing to be, you know, 2.4 trillion by 2024. So you're talking about a sort of a call it a 15% growth rate and, you know, two and a half percent of global GDP. So it's obviously a a huge and massive market unto itself. But if you look at those kinds of growth rates um, and you look at all the dollars being spent in digital transformation, um, depending on what dimension of the problem you're in, the growth rates range from, 19 to 20 at around six percent, um, you know, to all call it anywhere between eight or nine percent, um, and that number now looking more like you know 12 percent on the low end and 15 percent on the high end. So, so just in a one year period, what you saw is the the intensification of commitment to an investment in digital transformation driven by the pandemic, um, in part because you had to have a distributed workforce, you had to better meet the customer where the customer needed to be met, you had a you know, you had to think about reinvention of your business models and the creation of new revenue streams because you I mean necessity being the mother invention, you just had no choice. So on the, on, on one hand, you're saying, you know, the digital transformation market intensified. The trend line stayed the same, but the acceleration rate against that trend line, if given the numbers I just said, and, and intensified. So the, the first thing is you kind of had no, you kind of had no choice. The 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 second thing is is that the the changes that were introduced as a result of uh, of, of the pandemic are now you know many believe are going to sustain. I mean, look at the telehealth example. Are, are you going to really go back to a, a doctor's visit in the way you did pre-pandemic? You've learned you know how to use telehealth, and there was obviously an enormous amount of convenience in that in that in that example. You know, you're buying online and. Picking up curbside, or you're ever going to go back to doing it the you know doing it the old way? You you, you build habits, so so I think those things are, are are going to sustain. And of course, now what we're seeing is is all is that trend line, coupled with a massive economic tailwind. Um, and if you look at the confluence of the the trend line and the digital transformation imperative, given the onset of the pandemic and the economic tailwind on the back of the pandemic, those, those two factors says that this is a moment in time. Um, and if you just simply look at how we, at least at EY, believe that market's going to shape over the course of the next couple of years, we think that growth rate, as I talked about, sustains out probably to the end of 2023, and then it kind of levels off. So if you believe that, you'd say you've got another two or three years to really take your share of the opportunity in the digital transformation um, you know, landscape. And if you don't, you've probably missed the chance to do it. So. I don't I don't want to say now or never because like everybody, I don't have a crystal ball. But I think if the odds makers, certainly were among them would say it sort of is now, now or never. If you don't take advantage and recognize the imperative to drive change and how you orient and create um, value in your business, um, now you probably miss the opportunity. If you choose to, to take all this seriously, and most of our clients, including many of the CEOs with whom we spend time, see this as kind of, you know, in existential terms. And there is a recognition of, and many of them have says there there's just no guarantee that we're going to we're going to be here in quite the same way in another couple of years because, hey, we can't predict the amount of change other than to know there's going to be significant change. Um, And and if we don't take advantage of the opportunity now, it may may be too late. And who knows what that might ultimately mean.
0: The survey results showed that companies fall into two categories, thrivers and survivors. Thrivers saw revenue growth before and during the pandemic, specifically 42% grew during that time. And they're expected to keep on growing. But as we were just saying, the tension is with survivors who, in contrast, trailed and will fall further behind. For them, perhaps it is now or never. What makes these enterprises so different?
1: So, so I think there's a there's a few things, um, you know, Laurel. And I, and I said, f- firstly, and very very simply, I think it's about you know commitment and choice. And and you just you just at some level, um, you just got to simply say, I'm going, I'm going to do this, um, and confront it with the energy necessary to drive a different outcome. But then secondly, I I think it's, it it can become pretty daunting as you look at the magnitude of the change you have to confront. Um, And I think what we see in a lot of the conversations we have with clients is while certainly almost everyone is looking for the next big thing, really more specifically clients um, and organizations are looking for the next set of small things that they can have confidence will become the next big thing. So I think the second thing, uh, once you've chosen and committed, the second is you have to understand the landscape of, of possibility and find a systemic way to be able to shape those, um, to a necessary degree of completeness and then test their viability before tripling down on them, um, you know, prematurely and our sort of, you know, transformation conversations with clients um, in what we call transformation realized. We, we say there is really three value drivers: humans at the center, which we've spent quite a bit of time discussing, which is around customer and employee centricity. You know, two is innovation at scale, and, and three is technology at speed. While we've covered what's it matters in, in in customer centricity, the innovation at scale point says you have to learn. How to identify the series of small things that you can test and deploy and advance or retreat from very very quickly, very systemically, and build that innovation muscle that you can use uh, to uh, get gain more confidence. Because I think once you've made a commitment, then then you're kind of dealing with this sort of flywheel effect of the relationship between confidence and momentum, and the ability to transform. Is very much a function of how well you can generate momentum in pursuit of that transformation. But it's hard to generate momentum without having the confidence, you know, to go faster. And so learning how to test and, 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 and learn as it were, you know, and, and go from, you know, prototyping to MVPs to rollouts. Equally, the other thing I will point out is very important to our clients and something we certainly find ourselves in often at, at EY is while on one hand, you have to choose to commit to pursue a different future and orient to that with the ambition you would hope to uh, have anchored that effort. There's no transformation effort on the planet that doesn't itself come with significant risk. So you've got to also understand how you're going to mitigate and manage that downside risk. And as, as we often you know, tell clients in EY, because we understand how to help our clients navigate risk in many ways, perhaps better than others, but it's, you know, we'll say to clients, you know, why do you have brakes on the car? And almost everybody says it's so you can slow down. And and while on one hand, that's true, the real reason is you have brakes on the car, at least in this context, is not so you can slow down, but rather so you have the confidence to go faster. So I think the first thing is you've got to commit and choose. The second thing is you have to find the, the set of small things that become the big things. And then you've got to orient and apply the right management principles and discipline to manage risks so you can leverage the brakes on the car that give you the confidence to move faster.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of uh, really focusing the intent of that imperative. So specifically on the humans at the center driver, I mean, that includes both employees and clients and customers. So can you give an example of uh, a company or or something that you 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 know about of someone who's doing that well who's treating both customers and employees particularly well to make that a difference.
1: So I think there's a I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. So um, on on one hand, when when you start to think about the um, the customer dimension of it, um, we we like to think that um, the best way to break that down is to consider. Three different dimensions of what I think I mentioned earlier is 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 deepening customer intimacy, uh, and 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 for us it's very much around how do I create you know experiences, and I think recognizing that experience um, becomes a central theme in how you deepen that degree of intimacy. So how do I make the experience I create for my customer deeply personal? Um, uh meaning it's it's highly personalized so i can i can i can recognize and interact with that customer with a depth of understanding that that drives that intimacy how How do i make it predictive so I anticipate the need of a customer before that customer himself or herself expresses that need and then how do I make it adaptive where I recognize the context and the environment in which that 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 person um uh well you know physically is and as our devices um, are interacting more with our environments as environments themselves are getting smart, whether those are homes or whether those are venues and we ultimately all get back to them or, or cities or whatever the case may be. Um, so personalized, predictive and, 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 and adaptive. And I think if you look at those principles, you might look at organizations like Amazon and, and, and Apple, but you know others, you know, look at Pizza Hut Um you know, and, and 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 you know, Domino's two two examples just in the in, in the food space um, are are doing a really a really wonderful job of that. I think on the employee side, a big factor is is number one. Certainly, we saw uh, you know a big move to you know remote working and and employee enablement, and that certainly intensified for for obviously uh, necessary reasons across the pandemic. But one of the things that we find in a lot of these you know transformation. Um, scenarios is that the organizations that manage to drive a lot of momentum are ones that best engage and maintain belief across their employee base. Because the, you know, the biggest threat in many cases to the success and therefore then the failure on the threat side to the transformation effort is the participants in the organization just lose belief. Like, why are we doing this in the first place? So the more you can sustain engagement to create belief to drive momentum in your transformation, and those that are recognizing, you know, the you know the purpose, the ultimate why they exist in in you know in the world, and how the transformation efforts feed into, you know, their you know their ultimate purpose. Um, you know, sort of you know, as uh, you know, to, to use a Simon Sinek quote, which is pretty good, is you know. You know, Martin Luther King gave the I have a dream speech not the I have a plan speech and so you know the 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 you know the the you know the employee base is obviously um, they're, they're a big constituent and obviously need to be quote-unquote buyers and believers in, in in the future journey and so the more you can anchor this and in in, in in purpose and why in particular obviously is you know you know Millennials consume a larger and larger percent of the workforce Obviously, um, you know, belief and and meaning and engagement are pretty important principles for that large and critical constituency. So, um, those are some of the things that we you know we help our help our clients to try to understand.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's uh, particularly important. As you said, it's not just a generational shift; it's the um, ubiquity of products and and how you can help folks with their everyday lives. And that those are the products that are becoming more and services more and more in demand. Just a slight shift on that, though, as we become more focused on our devices, more reliant on uh, corporations for those you know, ubiquitous needs, uh, according to the CEO imperative study, only one-third of global uh, CEO respondents said with any kind of confidence that customers can trust us with their data. So one-third is a pretty low amount. Is it still possible to deliver customer experience and achieve customer intimacy without the right data capabilities or any of that trust?
1: Uh, I'm going to give you a simple one-word answer to that question, and, and the answer is no. You cannot. Um, this, is, this is entirely a, a data-driven exercise. And, and so I think you got to sort of break that down um, um, into some componentry uh, Laura, to really understand it so so the in no particular order but the first thing i would say uh, meaning order of importance right the, the first thing i'd say is that yes you're right trust is um, a critical dimension you know am i willing to you know uh, give up my my data as it were to some third party and so you've got to consider that 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 dimension i think the more you know, the more, um, and the more breaches we see, the more obviously, um, you know, uh, human beings are, 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 are sort of skeptical. But I think there's another dimension of it, which is, which is less about trust and more about value, which is if I'm going to give up something of mine to you, um, I have to receive something of value in exchange for doing that. So if you don't improve the experience in a meaningful way, and I receive no value in return for, for allowing you to leverage my data. What's my incentive to do it? So trust is one issue, but equally, the value of, of the experience delivered as a result of that is is another dimension. And it goes back to the thing we were talking about, customer centricity at the top, is if you're simply using my data to better sell me the things you want to sell, but do that with more intensity, I'm less interested. If you're really interested to understand how I want to interact, what I want to buy, where I want to buy, why I want to buy, then I'm then I'm a little I'm, I'm a little more more, more flexible. And I think we understand this value exchange paradigm pretty well. The the, the second thing, um, and and this is a, probably a conversation unto itself, but most organizations don't actually have the data architecture environments in in the way they think about their their broader technology environments built well enough in order to drive to this data centric environment we need to to triple down on so the the second thing is rethink your data architecture environments we would often talk with clients about this notion of creating a you know a data fabric that starts to stitch together the disparate data sources needed in order to drive that value exchange I talked about at the top, what what in the past one might have only thought about as data warehouses or data lakes, but th- those have some inherent you know, struggles uh, unto themselves. Um, and then the net effect of that is it has huge implications on your broader enterprise architecture environment, in- including by the way, you've made lots of commitments to you know, package providers and, and how well are those large package providers, whether that's an SAP or a Microsoft, are gonna be able to reorient To the data centricity, most organizations are going to have to anchor on. So that would be a that would be a second dimension, and then the third is the disintermediation of the human being. Think about it this way: How many times have you gotten in your car and you put your GPS on and it tells you to take a left turn, and you say that makes no sense to me? A left turn here—it doesn't feel right. I'm just going to keep going straight, and and that's that's a good metaphor to what happens in organizations. To say the data is telling me to do this—that's completely counterintuitive. To what it is i might otherwise do and so you've got to you know both a lean into the data to to allow it to drive you to a different endpoint, and then secondly you've got to resist the temptation to um you know to to to, to create confirmation biases i'm going to only look at the data insofar as it confirms what i already believe and i'm then i'm all about it as soon as it doesn't confirm what i already believe i'm i'm, I'm less interested so experience and value exchange at the top data architecture and technology environments a second and then leaning in for disintermediation and sort of you know next best action kind of environments would be would be a third so it's more complex than those three of course but that gives you three to at least consider for our purposes of our conversation here
0: yeah and i think that's a a good way to end on in the sense that it is complex there are so many different variables to you know really bring into play here but i think your point of committing and choosing how to start and how to do this and then fulfilling it as you as you find your way is really important so as companies think about this as you talk to your customers you know as you have your own experiences what are you hopeful about for this year what are the opportunities that you're also seeing yeah.
1: Well, I, I have to, um, in the, in the, in the spirit, uh, of, of pure openness, uh, Laurel, I'll, I'll tell you that by nature, and I'm an, I'm an incredibly hopeful and optimistic person. So 9.9 uh, times out of 10, I'm going to always see, um, upside. I'm definitely a glass is, is, is half, um, is half, uh, full, uh, and more than half full kind of person. And so I'm incredibly, um, uh, I'm incredibly optimistic, um, uh, and, and equally, um, uh, I'm incredibly excited. And I think that enthusiasm is widely shared uh, across my, my, my EY, you know, uh, partners and colleagues and, and, and beyond, you know, my partners and colleagues in, in, in the world. If you just simply look at, you know, the past, you know, year and a half, um, and the rate, the rate of change and, and frankly, in many cases, the rate of against, you know, seemingly insurmountable odds, the amount of, you know, sort of prosperity and reinvention we were able to, you know, to generate is 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 staggering. What we saw in the past year and a half accelerated us in 18 months, you know, back to my Lennon quote, beyond what would have otherwise been the case. We probably saw 10 years of innovation and reinvention in in, in eighteen months. And I see absolutely no reason why that momentum is not going to continue. Um, and in particular now, I think we'll be able to not only continue it, but we'll be able to do it in an environment where you know, the the you know the the economy um, is, is going to be a much better friend um, to uh, creating the comfort necessary to continue uh, to continue investing uh, and we continue to see you know new ideas and new technologies and new and new sources of inspiration every day and I think um, you know the past you know 18 months has also taught you know um, individuals and organizations how to learn and and, and adapt in, in some really You know, really, really profound ways, and so I'm super optimistic because I believe that that's you know that that's going to you know to continue. Um, But but also I guess um, you know since since it seems that we're um, we're moving to kind of wrap here, I'll I'll give you one one anecdote that I think kind of kind of you know sums up um, where I would hope most most organizations and in particular most most C suites and and boards can get to is um, when I was having this conversation. Uh, with a client in the context of um, of their digital transformation journey, where I introduced Muhammad Ali into the conversation, um, and I said, "You need to look no further than you know than Muhammad Ali for for how we move forward." And of course, you know, the person looks at me like I've got nine heads. I don't understand <laughs> how Muhammad Ali is relevant to this conversation at all. We're talking about enterprise architecture. What did Ali ever know about that? Um, and and so 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 I asked him a, a question. I said, you know, what is what is what would you say is Muhammad Ali's most famous saying? So if I would ask you, Laurel, that same question, what what is Muhammad Ali's most famous saying?
0: Oh my goodness! Now you put me on the spot. It's um, yeah. float like a butterfly, sting like a bee.
1: Boy, almost everybody says that, and you're not wrong. That is certainly one of them. But but he was equally famous for saying, "I am the greatest."
0: Right? I oh, think we were, how many?
1: I'm the greatest. What's really fascinating about that is when he started saying that Muhammad Ali um, fought his uh, first professional fight uh, against uh, against Sonny Liston in the early '60s, Um, and he started saying, "I am the greatest." Before you know, um, before and then just as he was entering the ranks of being a professional fighter, Uh, and so I think when you look back on on his career, I think you could argue he sure as heck was the greatest. But you might say at what point in time? Did he become the greatest? Somebody would say, "Well, he became the greatest once he beat Joe Frazier, and you know, and you know, or it was the thriller in Manila. He became the greatest." The answer is no. That's not when he became the greatest. He became greatest the day he just decided to be. And and I think that's one of the things that that we see. And I think I personally see a lot more organizations, a lot more chief, you know, many more chief executives choosing to make that Ali-like commitment. And I think more will follow. Um, so, am um, I'm, I'm, super, I'm optimistic for, you know, for, for that reason. And that's why I think, you know, one of the, one of the best sources of inspiration in the digital transformation journey is, um, for me and now for this particular client with whom I share that anecdote is Muhammad Ali. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with that.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much for the great conversation today on the business lab, Bill.
1: It's uh, been my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me.
0: That was Bill Canerich. EY's Global Chief Transformation Architect for Consulting, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can also find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab was a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening. The views of the EY person reflected in this podcast are his or her own views and do not necessarily reflect the views of the global EY organization or its member firms.